0: Uh, to adult, adult Sunday school, we're looking here again today at, at Martin Luther, the early, the early days. I realized last Sunday we got uh, young Martin born and baptized, and uh, that's as far as we got. But it was it was a good occasion, I think, to try to understand the medieval world into which he was born, a world of of saints uh, and relics. He, of course, uh, was named after the saint on whose day he was born. Uh, and, and we looked at the problem of mediation. One popular image of Jesus at that day it was of, of a remote, uh, far-removed, sort of avenging judge. And with that understanding of Jesus, there's a problem of mediation. We need a mediator. We need an intercessor. Uh, and so the saints began to take uh, more and more uh, of a role, local saints, uh, maternal sort of saints, like the Virgin Mary. Um, and so we tried to understand something about the medieval world into which Luther was born. But now we're going to try to leap forward today uh, and understand, move, move our slideshow ahead here. That's the statue in Wittenberg. Uh, that's the map. Remember Luther was born up in this area. And his early school days, his father sent him off to school uh, right up here in Magdeburg. And, uh, and in Eisenach, and then in Erfurt. We don't know a whole lot about his early days. Uh, maybe the two most interesting stories are, are probably more funny than anything else. Uh, we know that in school in Magdeburg, he was uh, beaten for failing to conjugate a Latin verb. Uh, that's one of the stories he tells us later in life. We know that uh, in Eisenach, at another school, he was uh, a little more pious. He joined the, the church boys' choir and, uh, and made a little bit of money uh, on the side singing in choir. And then uh, he shows up here. His father sends him to Erfurt, the, the great German city of Erfurt, a, a city of, I guess, more than average importance, not the most important city in Germany at the time, but one with an old university, at least 150 years old. And uh, his father enrolls him there in the university to be a, a Bachelor of Arts. And uh, he started, the class uh, that he came in with was about 300 students, and only about 60 or so graduated. So whether it was the, the rigor of the academic study that led to the dropout rate or something else, um, we're not really sure. He didn't perform terribly well as a university student. He, he was towards the bottom of his class. Uh, he seems to have said that uh, the, the dropout rate probably had something to do with with the the amount of beer that was consumed. Uh, Most of the university education was not actually in sort of formal classrooms, but at various taverns around the city. He once referred to the university as a a Baudy Beer House. Uh, And so he wasn't a very good student, uh, along with some of his classmates. Immediately after undergraduate, he went on for a master's degree to be a Master of Arts, uh, a class of maybe 20 students only. And he seems to have picked up the pace uh, intellectually and finished maybe second in his class, as far as we know. Uh, some of his intellectual abilities starting to come out. Well, he has an undergraduate degree and a master's degree. And the big question, facing students then, facing students now, what does he do with his life? Uh, what kind of vocation to choose? And he recorded later on in life that, he was uncertain of what to do. Uh, in fact, he explained, spiritually speaking, he was, he was maybe uh, concerned and thinking about the religious life, a new concern for his soul after university studies. Um, he records periods of great spiritual anxiety, uh, even bouts of sort of depression and melancholy, uh, such a heightened state of spiritual concern. Uh, so he wasn't sure what he wanted to do. Uh, Unfortunately, his father knew exactly what, uh, what young Martin should do and actually had some legal rights to dictate what his son would do. And so he sent his son to the law school at Erfurt uh, to pursue the law, to have a kind of lucrative career, and, uh, and, and Luther went along willingly. And that brings us to the famous lightning bolt uh, incident, which is maybe not quite as, as fantastical, uh, as you sometimes imagine, you hear this story, Luther's almost struck by lightning and becomes a monk. It, it sounds a little bizarre, but the, the, probably the more realistic story uh, is just that he was riding his horse from one city to another, and an electrical storm broke out, and his horse spooked and shied and threw him off, and he lands in the dirt, the lightning still striking out in the field around him, and he gives that foxhole prayer uh, saying, St. Anne, save me, and I'll, and I'll become a monk. St. Anne was uh, the, the, saint, the patron saint for minors, um, the kinds that dig, not the underage uh, sorts of minors. Uh, and so uh, he makes good on this vow. He's a clever boy. He's learned something uh, in law school about how to deal with his father. He first goes to the Augustinian uh, Hermitage in, in Erfurt and asks for admittance. And about the next week, he cancels his uh, law school registration, withdraws from school, and then goes to tell his father about the steps he 's taken and His father initially was was quite angry, uh, even wrote him a letter disowning him uh, so so frustrated was he with his with his son um, but in the end luther 's father sort of came around realizes that, that certain vows had been taken, and uh, there was probably not much he could do about it. So Luther goes uh, into the Augustinian Monastery in Erfurt, and it's interesting to think about what, what this might have meant, beyond just the bare facts uh, of, of being admitted to the monastery. What would have happened is uh, he would have first become a postulant. So he would have been living in the monastery for a week or two, we're not sure how long. He would have kept his city clothes, and the prior, who was in charge of the abbey, would have considered his request, uh, and they would have sort of observed him for a week or two. Then, uh, after being admitted, he would become a novice uh, and, and go through uh, a novitiate ceremony. Here, Luther would have laid uh, on the chapel floor in front of, uh, in front of the cross, and in fact, laying prostrate on the floor in the, in the shape of a cross, well, someone in charge of the monastery would have read the long list of duties and, and given a description of what uh, of what life in the monastery would have looked like, begging uh, for food in the streets, uh, as we'll learn a little bit more in a minute about the Augustinian order and the things involved, uh, being a monk. Uh, without food, cold, hours of reading the Bible, prayer, etc., uh, this would have been described. And after uh, singing some, some songs... Luther would have risen and taken his vows and then been sent to, uh, to a master of novices uh, for a whole year. That's, uh, at this point, he would have, uh, as a novice, shaved his head, the, the, the tonsure, uh, that we probably are all familiar with, the bald part of your head, the little fringe of hair. have got a picture of Luther in a second here. We'll see him in his tonsure. Uh, and he would have put on a, a, a novitiate's uh, cowl, and, and, a, and a master would have observed him then for a year before officially admitting him as a monk to see whether or not uh, he was cut out for for life in the monastery. After a year, uh, we know, in Luther's case, uh, in 1506, he was admitted and took vows and became a full Augustinian hermit. He would have uh, replaced the cowl with with a black and white uh, habit of an Augustinian monk. Uh, We'll talk a little bit next week about the university education that he pursued studying theology in the Bible uh, after. But at this point, 1506, um, he's a monk. And there is a picture of young young Luther. Uh, Luther's choice in monasteries is an interesting one. Uh, Erfurt, at the time, was called Little Rome. Uh, It was a 150-year-old university, Uh, A city of average importance, but it had 36 churches and 11 different monastic orders already operating in the city. So there's a a lot of choice. And he chose the Augustinian order, in part because it was an observant order, meaning it was a reform movement within the Augustinian and monastic world. It was known for its strict adherence to the rules. Kind of recovery of earlier monastic practices. And so you get uh, a picture, uh, a painting. This is uh, uh, from Lucas Cranach, who is a German Renaissance uh, artist, uh, actually became good friends with Luther, a kind of co worker in the Reformation. Uh, but he's pretty strict and severe looking. I mean, he looks like he, he just uh, finished basic training, you know. Um, And and I I think that's appropriate. It probably is is a pretty fair and accurate representation uh, of Luther. Becoming a monk was a little like becoming a a spiritual athlete. Um, Monasticism is a kind of spiritual asceticism. I'm not sure if you can see this in in the dark. That's not what I wanted to write. Ascesis. Is the, is the word I'm thinking of, from of which we get asceticism. That's okay. Ascesis means a kind of rigorous self-discipline, um, stripping away worldly in- encumbrances. Um, it really is a kind of athleticism, and, and so it's appropriate that, that Luther looks mean and fit and trim. I um, thought we'd talk a little bit about the history of monasticism, The monastic life was was the apostolic lifestyle is what the claim is what the claim was. Count the counsels of perfection does anyone know what the councils of perfection are? Three sort of important vows that were bound up in the in the monastic life: poverty what was that? obedience and celibacy. These are the three councils of of perfection. Um, now, monastic life doesn't actually go back to the apostles. Um, it arose, as best we can figure, probably sometime in the fourth century. And it's, it's an interesting sort of story how, how monasticism comes to such prominence. Early on, uh, in the early church, there was a lot of persecution of Christians. And as Christians made their way in the world, one of the great authenticators of Christian faith was martyrdom. Uh, It was sort of the highest honor and calling in the Christian life, as if you would be be a martyr. Well, as as Christianity and the empire develop and grow and emerge, uh, first Christianity becomes tolerated, persecution fades, the prospect of martyrdom of, uh, declines, and then Christianity becomes an established official religion of the empire the time of Constantine, Diodosius, and others in the, in the late 3rd, early 4th century. Monasticism was a kind of search within Christianity for the most authentic form of Christian life. And at a time when, when martyrdom and persecution was fading and declining, this new emphasis on ascesis, self-willed suffering, uh, self-incurred stripping away of worldly encumbrances, uh, almost putting yourself into harm's way, uh, physically speaking, uh, to almost kind of model and and mimic uh, the suffering of persecution and martyrdom that had gone uh, on before. And so uh, frequently people would choose episodes in in Jesus' life, and and pursue little episodes um, in order to pursue this rigorous kind of self-discipline, especially fleeing out into the desert uh, and enduring temptations and trials, spiritual warfare and battle with the devil. Uh, This would be a new way, um, not through suffering and persecution uh, at the hands of others, but in a self-accord way to to go out into into the desert and pursue this. So, One of the uh, most famous early 4th century monks, another picture of Luther, is St. Anthony of Egypt. His story is is probably a a familiar one. He was from a well-off family. Uh, His his family, his father, his parents die, and, and he receives the estate. He has some siblings, and on his way, as the, as the story goes, as the legend goes, on his way to worship, recalls that the that the early church gave all of their possessions and shared equally with each other. And then he recalls Jesus in, in Matthew 19, uh, his discussion with the rich young ruler, saying, if you would be perfect, sell all of your possessions, give to the poor, and come follow me. And Anthony says, that's it. So he sells this state, he sort of leaves some money for his his sister to look after her, and he goes out into the desert uh, to follow Jesus. There, uh, he's out there for for a long time, for some twenty years, um, out in the desert, further and further away from society. Uh, he got to the point towards the end where he was only only having uh, one meal a day, no meat, no wine, uh, one meal a day. Uh, bread soaked in water. Um, and after 20 years, he, he returns sort of back into community and he shares what he's learned through uh, his battles with the devil. In fact, this is an interesting painting. This is, uh, this is a 4th fourth, fourth century painting. Um, it, it's uh, a famous one. Michelangelo uh, painted this. That Saint, it's called The, T- the Torment of St. Anthony. He's out, uh, far removed from town, doing battle with the devil. Um, a, a famous, a famous painting from that time. And he he returns back into society, and he tells people what he's learned uh, about about doing spiritual battle with the devil. Um, now we we might not actually know all that much about Saint Anthony if it, if it wasn't for the fact that. Um, Athanasius, one of the great uh, early church theologians, uh, wrote a biography called *The Life of Saint Anthony It went through many, many, many publications and translations, and was widely read right up until right up until today. Um, oh. the form of monasticism. Uh, that Anthony developed and was responsible for is sometimes called uh, Eremitic monasticism or Anchoretic. Uh, Eremitic is sort of the Greek word for desert, going out into the desert. Anchoretic, Anchoresis, has to do with retreating, withdrawing from the world. So this form of monasticism that grew up around St. Anthony and after was a retreating monasticism, out into the desert, living especially the solitary life. And from, from, in fact, the word for monasticism uh, comes from the word for solitary uh, in, in, in Greek. Um, some of the real extremes in religious life uh, come from this anchoretic uh, form of monasticism. Thought I'd share two quick stories uh, give you a sense for how how Anchoretic monasticism develops. Um, this is a man named Simon the Stylite. He's in a little, a little tower here. Um, Simon the Stylite was pursuing the religious life and then he did the call to go out into the desert and model his own life uh, on Jesus and his temptations in the wilderness. And so he goes out and he climbs this little pillar and and raises his hands day and night in prayer to God. And this is his act of sort of spiritual self-discipline. Um, he stayed out there for so long that he became famous, suspended there between heaven and earth on this, on this pillar. And people came actually to, to observe him. Uh, and sometimes they even, I think he kind of cheated here. There's a little rope here with some food and, and a jug of water that's being uh, dragged up. Now, the legend is that every year he sat out there, the, t- the tower grew a little bit taller. Uh, finally, finally, when he, um, he died, someone else quickly resumed his place up on top of the pillar. Um, Simon the Stylite uh, became a kind of model for... They're almost like spiritual Olympians trying to outdo each other in feats of, feats of strength, self-discipline, and, and, and denial. Um, one of the more... Outrageous examples, not of self-discipline, but of a kind of antinomian version uh, of monasticism. This is uh, Simeon the Holy Fool. Uh, Most of anchoretic monasticism was extremely self-disciplined. But there was a kind of peculiar form of of antinomianism, which uh, makes sense, I think, in a way. Uh, This kind of... Rigorous, overly literal approach to the law can then sometimes breed a complete neglect of the law. And so, following, the claiming to follow, I uh, wasn't to say, uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians 4, Simeon the Holy Fool determined, decided to become a fool for Christ's sake, ridiculed and scorned by the world. Uh, and so, he, would, he was famous for all kinds of shenanigans. Uh, he would sometimes wander into the back of the church service when, when the service had already begun and, and throw nuts at people uh, just to sort of bother them. Um, he was famous, probably not so amusing, for, for dragging a dead dog around behind him wherever he would, wherever he would wander. He would run in naked into the uh, women's section of the city bath uh, and, and just cause, cause commotion. Um, intentionally, sort of put himself in a place of self ridicule, uh, or of, of ridic- to be ridiculed by society, to become a fool, uh, for Christ's sake. That that just gives you a little sense um, of two different options within uh, within monasticism. So here's a big question: um, when you're when you're pursuing god, the godless, uh, the, the, the the godly life, when you're pursuing Christ likeness. How do you, as a monk in the desert, maybe on a pillar, get around the fact that there are so many commands to love your neighbor in the Bible? How does one do that alone in a cave, etc.? It becomes a kind of problem. And so there's there's an alternate form of monastic life called communal or cenobitic, monasticism, a communal form of sort of economy, common life, and bios, uh, uh, bios life, uh, a common life form of monasticism springs up. And the founder of communal monasticism in, uh, in the West is this, this gentleman here, Benedict of Nursia, founder of the Benedictine order. Arising a little bit later, he founds a very famous... Uh, a monastery in Monte Montecassino um, in Italy. Um, he did his time in the desert, but then returned and set up a, a, a large estate, a communal estate, for other monks to pursue the, the religious life together. So some of the great, huge monastic houses of Europe uh, follow this form of, of monastic life. In fact, St. Benedict... Uh, here wrote a rule, the rule of St. Benedict's, a sort of manual for what monastic life would look like. Uh, it's probably one of the most important sort of documents, monastic documents in, in Western Christianity. These are huge estates, uh, I mean, with, with bakeries and kitchens and infirmaries and, and meeting halls and, of course, chapels and, and cells for the monks to live in. They would pursue a rigorous life of, of, you know, seven hours of sleeping, six hours of, of Bible reading, X number of hours working in the fields, um, and, and their, their day was was organized. Well, that's another picture of, of uh, Saint Benedict. He was the patron saint uh, of farmers. Uh, ravens are apparently part of his symbol. Um, you know, it's said that he. He once, in, once in passing, blessed some bees, uh, and and this supposedly, according to the tradition, encouraged the practice of beekeeping uh, in monastic life, and and then um, making mead. Well, I don't know how well we oh we can see that pretty well, can't we? Um, this is a little bit of the nerd and geek in me coming out, but this is a map of of medieval monastic houses. Um, One of the things that's interesting to note about this, uh, if you were to lay down on top of this map important trade routes in Europe, most of the monastic houses would line up with the important trade routes. So after a a, a harsh, rigorous beginning in the 4th and 5th century with Antony and, and Simon the Stylite, by the time you get to the Middle Ages, these large monastic manors come to hold a lot of land and, and uh, uh, be quite, quite successful financially. I mean, it's sort of cheap labor, um, and, and they're spread throughout, hard workforce, um, willing to work hard and be very disciplined. And so uh, around the 11th, the 12th, the 13th centuries, most of these monastic houses uh, are known more for the luxurious form of lifestyle having plenty of food, almost too much, uh, having a lot of money from trading the various things that they're producing, um, and, and, and for giving the, the, the monks an easy time of it. And so all these reform movements begin breaking out within established monastic orders, um, especially monastic orders returning to a life of, of poverty, the monastic... Virtue of poverty. Three especially are important, called the mendicant orders. Mendicare uh, is 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 the verb to beg. So, in reaction to these financially successful monastic institutions, three new orders are established, uh, especially based on poverty and and celibacy and, and obedience. This is. You can make it out. Francis of Assisi, the Franciscans, the Dominicans, and the Augustinians. Here's Francis of Assisi, he's the patron saint of animals and birds and butterflies and things, uh, uh, among other things. Um, Francis of Assisi, sort of a familiar story, goes out into the desert for a while and then returns to a communal form of of monasticism, rigorous, uh, giving away of possessions and pursuing uh, the spiritual life. Here's another picture. This is a famous fresco by Giotto, um, the early Renaissance Italian painter. Um, Here's Francis of Assisi receiving the stigmata. The thought was, uh, after Francis died, rumors began to spread around Europe that he had, during his life, received the wounds of Christ in his body. So united was he. This, this kind of gives you an idea of what, what this search for spiritual, authentic uh, existence was about. The, the goal was to pursue self-denial to become more and more conformed to Christ. And so conformed, according to the story, was Francis that he, he bore in his own body the wounds of Christ. Um, now, this was used to uh, sort of pole vault the Franciscans uh, to the top, of the top of the ladder in terms of what monastic orders were important. Uh, but other orders, the other mendicants were not about to be left behind. Here's uh, St. Dominic, uh, the founder of the Dominican orders. Um, he didn't receive the stigmata, but according to the legend, um, the Virgin Mary gave him a special revelation. Um, and the special revelation was that of the rosary. And so the Dominicans are, are maybe especially known for uh, for their devotion to Mary. Um, the, the rosary, I'm sure you all know the rosary, 10 beads uh, for 10 to help you keep track of your prayers when you're saying your prayers, 10 beads for, for praying to Mary and one larger bead uh, for, uh, for an our Father. Um, now the Dominicans tended to be Uh, schoolmen. They were the educators in the important universities in Europe. The Franciscans tended uh, to obey that vow of poverty and and work in urban settings, especially with the poor. They were great preachers to the poor. Uh, Thomas Aquinas uh, here is shown. One of the great Dominican theologians, obviously a, a, a university professor teaching in the university. There, and so we come back to um, to Luther. I thought very seriously about um, not talking a whole lot about monasticism, and maybe some of you are wondering why. <laughs> why did I decide to, to charge ahead and talk about monasticism today? Uh, the main reason is is because in Luther's day monasticism was a well-established thousand-year-old practice. And sometimes we think of Luther as a sort of rebel who who doesn't like the church, wants to get rid of church practices uh, and and start a revolution. Uh, At this point in Luther's life, he's taking the medieval church at its word. If you want to be a spiritual athlete for Christ, if you're concerned about your soul, you go into the into a monastic order. Uh, and, and, and Luther chose, of all the orders on option there in Erfurt, an observant order, a strict order that took seriously the vows of poverty and celibacy and obedience. Now, at the time Luther went into the monastery, taking monastic uh, vows was sometimes referred to as a second baptism. If you were in a state of sin and you became a monk... Uh, you were ret- restored to an original state of grace by becoming a monk. This is, this is what Luther was after. Um, uh, Bernard of Clairvaux actually said uh, that by becoming a monk, the image of God, according to which you were created, is so renewed and restored that a monk is more like an angel than a man. It was on these sorts of promises that that Luther went into the monastic house. Um, Now, we'll we'll talk a little bit more about his critique of monasticism later, but I'd venture a, a guess that the reform of monasticism had to have been one of the most tangible and radical changes at the time of the Reformation in the spiritual life of towns, villages, and, and people certainly doesn't, doesn't maybe rise to the, to the level of importance as, as justification by faith alone or the recovery of scripture. But this a 1,000-year-old practice was altered r- radically at the time of the Reformation so that the streets in German villages would have looked different. You, you might see a Lutheran pastor walking in his university robe to his home where he was married and had children. You wouldn't see monks on the street begging or retreating to monastic houses. The, the, the monastic house uh, that Luther took over in Wittenberg, uh, he when, once he's married, they turn it into an orphanage. And, and uh, it becomes a kind of a traveling house, a house for travelers to, to pass through. It's a pretty radical change um, in, in, uh, in, at the time of the Reformation. Here's a few quotes about, uh, about Luther um, and the seriousness. Oh, that's tiny, isn't it? <laughs> uh, well, I'll just read them for you. About the seriousness with which he pursued the monastic life. He says, I took the vow not for the sake of my belly, but for the sake of my salvation. And I observed all our statutes very strictly. I chose 21 saints and prayed to three every day when I celebrated Mass. I prayed especially to the Blessed Virgin who with her womanly heart would compassionately appease her son. So a little bit of that mediation that we saw last time. Uh, and it's there in Luther's own account of, of these early days. I almost fasted myself to death, for again and again I went for three days without taking a drop of water or a morsel of bread. I was very serious about it. Um, that's the that's the the path that, uh, that Luther sets out on. The other reason why I wanted to talk a little bit about monasticism is because uh, one of the most uh, important aspects of of late medieval spiritual life emerges out out of monasticism, namely the sacrament of penance. Monks in the monastic house would pursue confession with a spiritual supervisor, uh, and then be given acts uh, of penance to perform, sort of little good deeds uh, uh, to help change the spiritual balances, uh, tip things one way or or another. And out of this monastic practice of of, of self-discipline, some of which were were quite extreme, um, that's a, an image of of self-flagellation. Uh, out of these sometimes extreme forms of of penance, the laity eventually came to adopt sacrament of penance uh, as well. Uh, A monastic practice, in other words, is taken out of the monastery and given to the laity. And it becomes a central feature uh, of of late medieval spiritual life and one of the first areas of real attack and concern uh, when Luther um, uh, begins to, to read the Bible and think about these things. So next week, we're going to look at, we'll, we'll move forward even further. We'll look at Luther's um, critique of the sacrament of penance, especially uh, the sale of indulgences, which is an aspect of the sacrament of penance. Uh, and, and we'll move Luther sort of forward into the, into the Reformation. Are there, any, are there any questions about this? Thoughts? Yeah, Mark? Mark? Why did Luther choose it, or why did the... Well, Luther, or sorry, um, Augustine wrote a, a kind of rule as well. Um, and, and so even though there wasn't an Augustinian order at that point, such was his greatness as a theologian and as a, as a spiritual advisor that a, a monastic order cropped up. I think it was in Italy in the 13th century is when the monastic order arose. And then this observant form of monasticism arose in the, in the 14th Century. um i mean we there's so much more that could be said about about the history of monasticism. There are so many orders religious orders to take into into account uh, i mean it's interesting to know some sometimes the charge is leveled at at protestants that that uh we' we're, we're, we have no unity there are so many different Protestant denominations and and et cetera uh, that how could we be the true church? Well, the, the truth of it is is that there are more monastic orders than there are Protestant denominations. Uh, I mean, it, if you were to go through the sort of phone book of monastic orders, I mean, just the C's, there are uh, Capuchins, Carthusians, um, Carmelites. Uh, those are Those are just a few that come to mind. There are so many monastic orders. And then there are reform orders within reform orders. Um, It it becomes a pretty pretty messy story um, quickly, Um, all in the search of authentic spiritual existence. Um, Yeah? The Jesuits come at the time of the Reformation. Yeah. Ignatius of Loyola, is the founder of the Jesuit order in the early 16th century. Um, He actually may have gone to school in Paris at the same time Calvin was in school in Paris. Know if they ever met. He was a contemporary of Calvin's, um, and he is another example of a founder of a monastic order. This time, they're going to be really serious, uh, and 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 so the Jesuit order is founded. A group of friends. Well, first they decide they're going to go and take back the Holy Land, um, uh, sort of carry on the Crusades in the 16th century, um, and then and then take a a, vo- a vow of absolute obedience. To the papacy and become known as a kind of militaristic uh, order but the Jesuits don't arise till till later yeah yeah I mean the other major changes that that of course come about sanctification the life of sanctification isn't pursued in seclusion, you don't retreat or withdraw from the world. You, you pursue sanctification in the world. And, of course, then, then, then the, the Reformers, um, most of them get married. In fact, I, f- I have a quote here um, from Charles Hodge about how family life requires incredible amounts of self-discipline. Uh, if you're looking for authentic spiritual existence, consider family life. Here's what Ch- Charles Hodge says. It's in the bosom of the family that there is a constant call for acts of kindness, of self-denial, of forbearance, and of love. The family, therefore, is the sphere best adapted for the development of social and Christian virtues. It may be safely said that there is far more moral excellence and true religion to be found in a Christian household than all the desolate homes of priests or in the gloomy cells of monks and nuns. That sort of captures the Protestant spirit, sanctification in, in, in the midst of life, uh, and especially family life. I think we have to end here. Uh, let me pray for us and uh, for the rest of our Lord's Day. Gracious Father, uh, we thank you for your goodness and mercy to us. We thank you that you have plucked us uh, from, from the self-despair that we sometimes find ourselves in. Uh, and for the blood of Christ, you've forgiven our sins, and the resurrection and the gift of spirit uh, make us hopeful uh, and certain of glory to come and the attaining of the resurrection in the last day. Uh, we thank you for this day of rest, for opening the word to us. Uh, help us to uh, return this evening uh, to hear more of the good things you've done for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.